How the Left Was Lost. Barry Weiss, The New Founders, America Needs. What has become obvious to anyone paying attention is that we are living through a kind of revolution. It is not a physical one, as my friend Abe Greenwald wrote in Commentary Magazine. It is not being fought within the physical limits of the battlefield. It is instead happening all around us and directly to us. It is redefining our culture, our media, and giving new shape to our public and private institutions. It is remaking the nation before our eyes. In other words, this is a revolution of culture, a revolution of ideas. Everyone has their own version of how the left was lost. This is mine. I tell my story as someone who was very much a devoted Hillary supporter in 2016 and an early Biden supporter. I tell this story as someone who got online in 1994 with one foot in the real world and one foot in the virtual one. I also tell this story as someone who is no longer a Democrat. Any slim chance there might have been for me to support the Democratic Party has been eliminated by the undemocratic partisan show trials of January 6th, an authoritarian power grab based on the lie that Trump brought the Proud Boys to D.C. to launch a violent insurrection against the U.S. government. Trump would not have urged Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz to debate the election in the Senate if he wanted to overthrow the government. All the violent riot did was interrupt the case he was trying to make and hand absolute power to his enemies. He might be a lot of things, but dumb is not one of them. Yes, the Democrats have used January 6th as a Reichstag fire to grow their power, punish citizens, and present a litmus test to anyone who dares to question the results of the 2020 election. After the American people watched the Democrats in the media completely memory hole what happened in the summer of 2020, most are looking at these hearings and the reaction to January 6th overall as an existential crisis the political aristocracy has time and money to care about. Biden's America. By the summer of 2020, I could see that there was something very wrong with the left. Because I still wanted Biden to win, I was worried they were abandoning three basic fundamentals this country relies on. Freedom of speech, cancel culture was raging, law and order, defund the police was trending, patriotism, attacking federal buildings and historical statues saying America was systemically racist. Not only did no one listen to anything I had to say, but they were angry at me for saying it. Neera Tandon wrote me personally and asked me to stop criticizing the Democrats until after the election because defeating Donald Trump was the main priority. But I was beginning to worry more about this new version of the left taking power than I was even Trump. If the things we were seeing in newspapers and across all institutions, silencing dissent, firing people right and left, and the suddenly strident doctrine that was being forced down everyone's throat got into government, then our country would start to look a lot more like an authoritarian utopia of the 1984 kind. 
Turns out we have become that authoritarian utopia, at least online. We trusted the big tech oligarchs with our data, our friendships, our preferences, our financials. Now they're turning on those who are non-compliant and tossing them out of what looks a lot like the inner party in 1984. In 1984, the hierarchy was Big Brother at the top, and then 2% of the population, the inner party, that would be the oligarchs and the billionaires. Then there's the outer party, that would be mostly the Democrats at this point, and the establishment Republicans that have been given a golden ticket to the party. And then 85% of the population would be considered the proles, the proletariats representing the uneducated working class. The left was never the resistance. They were always the empire. You can't be that rich, that powerful, and control almost every area of American culture from Hollywood to book publishing to media to science and big tech and not be the empire. Trump's side was the resistance and still is. It feels eerily like 1984 now that the internet is ruled by a partisan cabal doing the bidding of the government. Even the two minutes of hate feels like every day on Twitter or the January 6th show trials. But even as we grasp at victory, there is a cancer, an evil tumor growing, spreading in our midst. That's because Orwell recognized the hypocrisy of a movement supposedly based on equality that was still totally unequal. It's kind of like how the left has those lawn signs that say, this house has no hate, but of course they are filled with hate for those they have deemed bad people. Moral superiority against those with less power than you have is not a good look for the left. They justify it because they have reordered the power hierarchy in this country which puts the most marginalized people at the top and the least marginalized at the bottom. If you are white, to them you are powerful and therefore you must be dropped to the bottom of the new hierarchy. Likewise, if you are black and extremely wealthy, you are still marginalized and at the top of the hierarchy. They are hardliners when it comes to skin color, but fluid with gender. The first time I heard that the left no longer believed class to be an issue was pointed out by the conservative analyst Victor Davis Hanson, who wrote, During the 1980s cultural war, the left's mantra was race, class, and gender. Occasionally, we still hear that trifecta, but the class part has increasingly disappeared. The neglect of class is ironic, given that a number of recent studies conclude class differences are widening as never before. Middle-class incomes among all races have stagnated, and family net worth has declined. Far greater percentages of rising incomes go to the already rich. Student debt, mostly a phenomenon of the middle and lower classes, has hit $1.7 trillion. States such as California have bifurcated into medieval-style societies. California's progressive coastal elites boast some of the highest incomes in the nation, but in the more conservative north and central interior, nearly a third of the population lives below the poverty line, explaining why one of every three American welfare recipients lives in California, end quote. There are two conflicting worldviews, not just in America, but in other countries. Global elitism versus nationalist populism. To the left of this country and much of Gen Z, 
They have come of age online, so they aren't so locked into the idea of America as a place with states and borders. Ideology matters to them more. One kind of future would be like 1984, where many countries have come together to form a broader virtual union. But there is another movement across the globe to push back against it. Some have called it far-right nationalism, but it is the side that opposes the woke indoctrination and the new environmental policies of the left. There are already uprisings against what many countries have done with masks, vaccine, and now the climate. The Democrats, the media, and Biden tell Americans every day how little they care about their problems. Only the wealthy can afford to sit around all day ruminating on January 6th and the existential crisis of Trump. Batia Ungar Sargon was on the progressive left, like so many others out there, and understands the working class of this country is not reading the New York Times or watching MSNBC. They're mostly watching Tucker Carlson, so she goes on his show because she knows she can reach a much broader audience. She is, to my mind, a kind of guiding light we need moving forward. <laughs> Shockwaves back to the United States after yesterday's January 6th hearing. With this new January 6th evidence that really is sending out shockwaves. Breaking news about the January 6th investigation is that the shocking testimony. Yeah, it was an insurrection. No, it wasn't, you're lying. Be quiet, nobody cares, they're talking to themselves. This, at the very moment, we have food shortages in the United States of America. So nobody's watching this. During the January 6th committee hearings in mid-June, CNN recorded its worst ratings week since November of 2015. And polls confirm why. Nobody in America cares. We have massive problems, mostly economic problems, that are being completely ignored by the media. Kind of weird, maybe because they're not touched by those problems. According to Rasmussen, Top voter issues are gas prices, inflation, the economy, and violent crime. Bhatia Unger Sargon is the deputy opinion editor at Newsweek, and she joins us tonight. Bhatia, thanks so much for coming on. So there should be, like, if you care about democracy, you're saying you do, and you're in the media, you should at least try to illuminate the issues that the people of your country care about. Why not look at a poll once in a while and cover that? But they don't. Why? So thank you so much for having me, Tucker, and thank you so much for leading the show with Jose Alba's very distressing story. Oh. It's so important, and you always get to the most important story of the day. Yesterday was another example of that. You know, you're totally right when you ask Americans in poll after poll, what are you most concerned about? They say the same four things over and over and over. The price of gas, the price of food and inflation, violent crime, and jobs. Now, this is not surprising. Two-thirds of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. But when you ask journalists what are their top concerns, they say climate change, the war in Ukraine, January 6th misinformation, right? There is zero overlap there. Why is that? I mean, it looks like it's a story about politics, but as you cover every night on your show, Tucker, that is a story about class. There is an enormous class divide in this country, and one class has the luxury to sit around obsessing over misinformation, and the other class is sitting at home wondering whether they should put their money towards putting meat on the table or gas in their car, because they don't have enough money for both. Historically, societies that have a divide this vast between the people running everything and everybody else in their attitudes and their economic positions, those societies become very and dangerously unstable. Are you worried about that? 
I'm not because I have a lot of faith in the American people. I mean, polarization is a totally elite phenomenon and Americans just don't buy it. And the sad thing is, is it would be bad enough if journalists were just ignoring violent crime. We're just ignoring the fact that regular Americans can't afford meat, but it's worse than that. They create a taboo around talking about these issues. If you say, I am not okay with prosecutors siding with violent criminals against their victims, they call you racist. If you say, I am not okay with the fact that one in five American small businesses was decimated by these lockdowns, they call you a grandma killer. They have misunderstood their economic privilege as virtue, and that is unforgivable. And that is why I watch Tucker Carlson, because he is the most watched cable news host, and he's the most watched among the working class, which my former party has all but abandoned. The Empire's New Clothes 2008 turns out to be a pivotal year. It was the year that Neil Howe and William Strauss predicted would spark the fourth turning, which would be something along the lines of the Civil War. Here is how House and Strauss describe the fourth turning on their site. Quote, The fourth turning is a crisis. This is an era in which America's institutional life is torn down and rebuilt from the ground up, always in response to a perceived threat to the nation's very survival. Civic authority revives, cultural expression finds a community purpose, and people begin to locate themselves as members of a larger group. In every instance, fourth turnings have become new founding moments in America's history, refreshing and redefining the national identity." End quote. Well, speaking of history, we have two gentlemen on our set who have been looking at history to find some of the trends and to help us understand what might be ahead for us uh, in this country and globally. Neil Howe and William Strauss. We'll start with Neil Howe this morning. We've always heard the phrase, history repeats itself. When people say it, are they right? Well, we argue in, this, uh, in our book that in many respects history does repeat itself. Uh, we take a close look at the rhythms of American history, and in our book we make the following big prediction, that beginning about 10 years from now, America is due to enter an era of crisis, an era of political and social upheaval that will last uh, around 20 years or so until the late 2020s. Uh, we call this era a fourth turning. And we think it's going to be a big threshold for the history of our nation. It's going to be something on par with World War II and the Great Depression, or going back the length of a human lifespan before then, the Civil War, or going back the length of another human lifespan, uh, the American Revolution. It could be a time of tragedy or or a time of great opportunity. Uh, It could, of course, uh, uh, bring pain and suffering, but more importantly, uh, historically, these kind, these eras of crisis, these eras of, of, of uh, reconstruction, allow us to raise our civilization up to a new level. Howe has said he believed it was the financial crisis of 2008 that led to the $700 billion bailout that sparked the fourth turning. And indeed, two populist uprisings sprang to life in its wake, Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party. There were other uprisings during Obama's presidency, like the storming of the Capitol in Wisconsin and Michigan, not to mention the formation and activism of Black Lives Matter, all of these mobilized by whole communities connecting online. The ways in which social media spurs political mobilization and even violence has only been applied to the right. But think about this, Kenosha burned to the ground before journalists got the false narrative 
corrected that he was unarmed and breaking up a fight. They only seem to be worried about the Trump supporters, but I expect in a few years they will come to regret that. 2008 was also the election of the nation's first black president, Barack Obama. That would spark not just a movement, but a full-blown religion that would influence American culture in ways not felt on the left since JFK. The other major turning point that occurred in 2008 was that Obama became the first president to use a social media platform, Twitter, to build his coalition. Twitter became the church and the fulcrum for the left. It would only intensify over time, and in 2020, Twitter would become the authoritarian arm of the empire, which was now controlled by the Democratic Party. Obama's first term win would send the left into a kind of rapture for a community that was already trying to aim towards self-improvement with the rise of therapy and antidepressants, not to mention daily talk shows like Oprah, where we began to understand the difference between good and bad people. We were already on the path towards perfecting our new utopia even before Obama rose to power. But once he did, the utopians had a leader and a religious figure. The rapture would last just four years. By Obama's second term, 2012, the devil had come to the left in the form of racism. Before that, most of the country was pleased Obama had won. It felt like an important milestone in a country whose history and legacy was stained, not just by slavery, but by the Jim Crow era of the South that destroyed whole generations of black citizens. Obama had been a uniter, that was until things started to go badly for his administration. His progressive policies drove an extreme reaction by the rising populist movement on the right, and eventually, in his second term, Obama had a solid red Congress. The more Obama was obstructed by Congress and the more the Tea Party rose up to oppose Obama's policies, the more the focus on racism began to permeate the consciousness on the left in a new way. Racism was baked in. It wasn't anything you did, it was something you were. An accusation is enough because how can anyone prove that they aren't? Any white person who opposed or even criticized Obama, who had become and remains a godlike figure on the left, had to be racist. By 2013, critical race theory and gender theory would spread from college campuses to high schools to online social media sites like Tumblr. Even before Trump ran in 2016, there was this idea that racism was everywhere and in everything. That 2013 generation on Tumblr went to college and enacted their online justice ideology in real world activism. Remember, if your only experience of presidential leadership is Barack Obama, and you believe half the country is white supremacist, then your activism is going to center around fixing the omnipresent racism the same way the Puritans were chasing witches to purge the devil from their otherwise devout village. And since this generation understood that you broadcast your identity online and on social media, what you did, what you stood for, what you fought for, defined who you were and separated you from people who weren't doing that. I remember during the summer of 2020, my niece was begging me to put something about anti-racism on my Instagram. But I had been writing about racism and advocating for black artists for years on my website, awardsdaily.com. That felt performative to me, and frankly, she sounded like she was in a cult. They were urging her to drop her relatives who weren't committed to racial justice. 
This was in 2015. What is going on in college campuses in America? There are over 23 universities now which have minority and black student protest movements demanding changes, saying that there's institutional racism ingrained inside the system. And these are some of the most prestigious colleges in the country. This one is Princeton University in New Jersey. And there's a group of students right now who are occupying the president's office. They've got demands. They want to see changes, and we want to find out what they are. A group of students have called for reforms here at Princeton. Their main demand is to rename the School of Public and International Affairs, named after former President Woodrow Wilson, who was a known segregationist and a racist. We out here! We've been here! We're leaving! We are loved! We out here! This was the scene at another Ivy League bastion of privilege, Yale, just a day earlier. Students there are demanding that a dormitory, named in honor of an advocate of slavery, be renamed, and that faculty who refused to ban Halloween costumes that some students found offensive be fired. Their protests got widespread attention when this incident surfaced. By sending out that email, that goes against your position as master. Do you understand that? Then no, I don't agree with that. Then, then why the fuck did you accept the position? Who the fuck hired you? I have a different you The student is angry at one of the members of faculty who refused to explicitly ban the Halloween costumes. These Ivy League protests follow on events at a state school, the University of Missouri, where African American students have faced overt racist attacks. I'm resigning as president of the University of Missouri system. Protesters there succeeded in getting President Tim Wolf to admit he hadn't done enough to fight racism on campus and to step My daughter told me she first started noticing what we call cancel culture, originating on Tumblr in 2013 with a website, Your Fave is Problematic, wherein a self-appointed army of strident thought police would call out celebrities or anyone whose platform was growing if they committed any sort of crime against the new doctrine. Here's a sample of what that looked like. For podcast listeners, it's showing posts that say, Megan Fox culturally culturally appropriative Chinese character tattoo, pink, appropriating and sexualizing the kimono. Naturally, as the left was becoming more politically extreme, so too did the right rise up to challenge that movement and push back. Around 2013, Trump began getting political on Twitter Part of it was his alignment with the Tea Party, though really its representative was Sarah Palin, who ran as John McCain's running mate in the pivotal year of 2008. The Tea Party was already considered a racist movement by the left, thus anyone involved in it had to be racist. That is nothing but a bunch of tea-banging rednecks. Angry government and, uh, and, and racism. And the conservative movement has now crystallized into the white power movement. Who are Ill into killing blacks and Jews and women or whatever it may be. I haven't met any racists yet, to be mm -hmm. honest with you, not in the Tea Party. Have you yourself, has anyone accused you of racism for your involvement in the Tea Party? Today, yes. I've been called a couple of bad words today. They're a cult. Nazis. Fascist. Un-American. Racist. Any opposition you have 
any opposition to Obama, to, to the Democratic Party, anything right now, the way to end any argument, racist. This is racism straight up. They say racist, and the argument's over. How can that be? I mean, there is freedom of speech, but you know, that comes with a responsibility. I think this is dangerous rhetoric. They're fascist stooges who, uh, in the true sense of that word, that's not hyperbole. Oh. And, you know, we see these hate groups rising up, and this is definitely so part do, of do that. You no, I see a lot of anger toward the government, but I don't see any hate. The media is, has told everyone, uh, these blind, these blind, misguided people, that the Tea Party is racist, so that, so that you know, African Americans and other, other groups and Democrats won't participate in something which would definitely help out their children. You can't deal with these people! That, that's what they want to do. They want to categorize us to where we're all, all fighting each other. I think they're threatened and they're afraid we're going to win. So they're trying, like, how can we bring it down? Oh, the worst thing you could be in this country is a racist, so let's say that. This is about hating a black man. The honest with you, the first time I heard Obama speak, I thought, there's a guy that knows what he's talking about. He speaks very, very well. But he has converted it to socialism. Take from the people who are working and give to those who aren't. You are un-American, you are anti-American, you do not love this country, and you are rooting against America. They see millions of people in this country asking the question among themselves and within their neighborhoods, are these fools in Washington going to wreck our country? And it scared them half to death. Here is Steve Bannon way back in 2012 explaining what would become the Trump strategy to win in 2016. This all is going to come down to a ground game. This is all going to come down to voter turnout. This is going to come out in places like Florida, North Carolina, Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Colorado. A handful of states and about five million people will determine the direction of the country. It is absolutely incumbent upon all of us that we have just as much hard work and just as much determination as we had in 2010. Remember, with no money and no support in 2010, the Tea Party won a huge victory. And that was all because people got off the sofa, went to a rally, found their neighbors, went to Facebook, got on Twitter, went to these sites, used social media with no money at all. We totally disintermediated, which is a fancy term for saying we moved the political parties out of the way and, they, and people took control of their own destinies. That has to happen. If you think, if you're frustrated, this is not going to happen in one election. We're in a literally a 10 or 20 year struggle for the future of the country and that's where you're just going to have to man up, toughen up, just like our forefathers, right? We're going to have to do exactly the kind of effort they had and we can win. I like what you said about how our forefathers, they were, they were fighting in battle. Bannon has also been labeled a racist along with the MAGA movement. One of the biggest disadvantages for the left and even the never-Trumpers is that they are now being caught with their pants down since they are losing Hispanic and Asian voters. Even black voters are starting to flee the Democratic Party. The America First movement, per Steve Bannon, has been actively trying to recruit those voters. Anyone who knows the movement knows it isn't based on race or racism. Once they become aware of that, the entire left and the media instantly lose credibility. The media and the Democrats have been whipping members of the left into a state of hysteria for six long years. They never stopped to think about what that might be doing to the formidable minds coming of age online. That kind of delusional thinking is what got us to Evergreen and what got us to the summer of 2020. Fuck you and fuck the police! Last month, Evergreen State College in Washington went crazy. 
when a professor of evolutionary biology named Brett Weinstein objected to a day of absence when white students and faculty were asked to voluntarily leave campus. Weinstein branded it a form of racial segregation. A group of student protesters called him a racist. The confrontation incited further protests, debates over free speech, and claims of systemic racism on campus. There are some offering us a way out, a new founding of sorts. Barry Weiss, whose common sense offers a path forward that retains some of the altruism of the left in its current state, but also seeks to build a new foundation of American life that preserves the things that define this country. Weiss has written a brilliant manifesto of sorts from a speech she gave at the new free-thinking university she helped build. Quote, to be a founder in 21st century America means to reject the politics of resentment and to recognize our privilege. My dad lost a younger sister to cancer. My dad also has MS. So why does he constantly say he is the most privileged man in the world? Because he grew up in a stable, loving home with two parents. But he has meaningful work because he has Judaism and the community that comes with it because he married the love of his life and above all else because he had the great good fortune to be born in America. Even with all our flaws and failings, even with inflation and polarization and tribalization, anyone who is honest will admit that there is nowhere better to build a life. Saying that right now feels radical because grievance and resentment define the current cultural moment. It's a dead end. We must get back to gratitude. End quote. James Strzok, who writes of America's fourth founding in a must-read piece called Who Lost America, lays out exactly what happened to this country since around 2013. Demands for recognition and respect of non-majority identities are by no means new. They recur through the course of history. They're a feature, not a bug, of our national experiment. They prompt periodic resets of American political life, sweeping more people into full participation. Those holding power are persuaded to acknowledge the rights of others in the ceaseless cause of aligning our practices with our ideals. What's different now is that the most conspicuous variants of identity politics reject the ideals of individual rights and autonomy for all. Instead, they assert that existing hierarchies are irredeemably illegitimate, built on oppressor group dynamics rather than making it possible for more people to compete and earn places in talent and competence hierarchies, these critics seek to invert them. Those classified as members of historically marginalized groups would be placed at the top based on immutable characteristics. This approach inclines toward rule by an elite, tending toward autocracy rather than democratic self-governance. This yields a banquet of consequences, Group victimization is venerated, individual achievement is derogated and deconstructed by frenzied packs of injustice collectors, institutional power is honored, political persuasion is neglected, representative democracy is discredited as built upon past unjust assumptions and institutions rather than safeguarded as a foundation for the ongoing pursuit of progress." End quote. When we put it all together, and when we look at what this country has become at the hands of the left, we have a larger majority that will reject it. They will reject Hollywood movies that are soaked through with dogma, almost all of them are. 
They will reject candidates who drive some of the more extreme policies of the Biden administration. They will reject what appears to be indoctrination in our public schools. And hopefully they reject this bizarre new religion that seems to exist only to alleviate the guilt and shame of the most successful and wealthy Americans who loved Obama enough that they wanted to atone, eternally, for their sins of white privilege. Watching them alternate between white guilt and being white saviors is exhausting. It seems so self-serving and punishes those in the middle or at the bottom who have no such marginalized status to allow them entry to the inner party. They are asked or demanded to be good allies and give up their talent or their skills or take a step back to allow for equality of outcome rather than opportunity. But we are still a country that needs to be based on the hardest working and the very best to rise to the top, regardless of status, race, or any other way societies categorize and rank their citizens from birth. We should be giving everyone a shot, not telling others to slow down for those behind them to catch up. Strzok ends his piece by saying, we can't wait for any savior to rescue us. Quote, how will we diagnose and alleviate the pains afflicting our body politic? Are we experiencing America's death throes or is a new nation struggling to be born? The answer is unlikely to be found through the calamitous clarity and contingency of foreign war. And it's unlikely to be delivered from on high here at home by a leader as yet unidentified. As with the generation of 1776, the Civil War generation and the greatest generation, the American future depends on us, ordinary citizens, bound to one another in an extraordinary, fateful experiment. End quote. The left I used to know stood up for the little guy, the working class poor, not just those they choose to help because they are ideologically compliant, we didn't punish or cancel artists. We didn't censor and bully journalists. There is no doubt we have lost our way. Perhaps a massive red wave will give the Democrats a chance to collapse completely and then rebuild with new blood and a better path forward. Thank you for listening to my Substack, sashastone.substack.com. <laughs>